Luke chapter 9, going to read verses, just verse 1 and 2 actually to get started and then we'll go through the rest of it as we, as we head along. Um, yeah, I've entitled this message, Two Kings and Two Tables. Luke chapter 9. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. One person cannot do it all, even when that one person is Jesus. So Jesus has come and he obviously is different from all other people, but he has come with a message about the kingdom of God. He has come with power and authority to heal and restore humanity, but he can't do it on his own. And he commissions the 12 to go and to bring the message that he wants the whole world to hear. Many ministries begin with a visionary, an individual, one person or one couple or one small group who get a vision for something and they carry it. And it is so important that that vision is shared and that others carry it as well. Because when it's just carried by one person, then it can be very dangerous. I have been really alarmed this last probably few years and maybe an acceleration this last few months in the number of high profile ministry leaders who have been wrecked for one reason or another. It is really alarming. There's a a website that I look at most evenings at some stage called churchleaders.com. Usually there's just good wee articles on there, bits and pieces. It's not particularly profound stuff, but it's good. And there's a sort of a news section that keeps you up to date with what's going on in the church. And nearly every week, something's happening where a visionary, somebody who carried a mission, somebody who established and, and built up a great community of faith, a great church, and they have fallen. And sometimes it's because of sin and sometimes it's because of real controlling issues and leadership. But there's lots of different reasons. But it's making me realize how unhealthy it is if one person is is sort of pioneering and carrying everything. Even Jesus, even Jesus took what he had and put it into 12 guys and said, you take it. You take it. What's required is in this mission is not something that one human being can handle. And Jesus gives it to the 12. And a good word for them is they are ambassadors. Yesterday, our beloved football team played against another team called Ambassadors, who you might have heard of, a team with a Christian ethos. And they really did uphold that yesterday. It was a, it was a nice game, it was a competitive game, but the boys and the coaches and you know, all did themselves um, proud the, the, the way they, they got on. It was a, a joy to play against them. But an ambassador is defined as an accredited diplomat sent by a state, a government or a king, as its permanent representative in a foreign country. 
And as ambassadors, the disciples, the twelve, and now us as well, we are to represent the king in this foreign world that is fallen from what he called it and designed it to be. And Jesus gives, you know, like a king would give authority to his representative, then Jesus gives authority to his followers to take what he has and to bring it to the world. And the disciples don't know it yet because the disciples haven't read all of Luke chapter 9 yet. Nor do they even know there's going to be a Luke 9 or a Luke or that they're going to figure in it. But at the end, towards the end of Luke chapter 9 or even towards the middle of it actually, Jesus will start to speak about what's going to happen to him. And he knows there's an urgency about multiplying himself and getting these guys to carry the message. And it's a venture of faith. He says to them in verses 3 and 4, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. They are stepping out in faith. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a model universally for ministry or for mission in terms of how maybe a missionary should live. I think sometimes there's almost a a poverty mindset that those who are on the mission field should live in squalor. And I don't believe that is actually biblical. I believe they should live comfortably and live in a way that allows them to engage with the community and to entertain and, and, and show hospitality and the like of that. So I don't think Jesus is saying that those who go out on mission should not have anything. But I think it's a general call to travel light. Because the more we have and the more we're involved in, the more that can slow us down. In, in Acts, the, the early church in the book of Acts, they didn't follow this exactly. They put everything into a pot. They got all their resources and they put them together, as most churches do. And they, they put what they had in one place so that people could be blessed. So that people would have what they needed. So that nobody would have lack. All right. So this is not necessarily a model for all the ages. But in this moment, there's an urgency. Jesus knows they need to move and he wants them to move in faith and he also wants them to, he says, don't take a bag. Now, I don't think he means a rucksack or a hold all with your your sort of, you know, your toothbrush and your toiletries and your chains of clothes and what. I don't think he's talking about that. He's talking about the money bag. Because back in the first century, there were loads of philosophers who would have went round from village to village and would have sort of, communicated their ideas to people and then held out the money back and said, come on, (laughs) I've shared my wisdom and my thoughts with you. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be associated with those who take advantage of people, with those who try to rip people off. I want you to go in faith and believe that God will provide what you need. And and he says to them as well at the start of verse 5, If people do not welcome you, leave the town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That was what a Jewish person did if they had been in Gentile territory. So if they'd left Jewish territory, gone to a Gentile village or a, a Gentile nation, whenever they returned and sort of crossed the border back home into Jewish territory, they would have literally done that. And made sure that that Gentile dust was off their feet before they came back onto their own land. And Jesus says to them, when you go out on this mission trip, if people don't accept you, shake the dust off your feet. Because those people who don't accept you are not part of Israel. 
Because what we know from the Gospels and what we see, what we will see a wee bit in this story as well, and we've seen it already, haven't we? Yeah, very first verse, when Jesus called the twelve, the 12 is not just a convenient number. It's not just you know, that there happen to be 12 disciples. Even the fact that this Bible has capitalized the word 12 shows there's something going on here. They are the 12 because they are new reconstitution of what Israel is. Israel had 12 tribes and these 12 guys is Jesus' way of saying, I'm changing what it means to be part of the people of God. The people of God are not just the descendants of Abraham. The people of God are those who are gathered around me, around Jesus. And whenever they come back from, they weren't going into Gentile territory. They were going to the villages around Galilee. But Jesus says to them, if people in the villages of Israel do not accept me and do not accept your message, then they're not actually Israel. They're not actually the people of God. So you just shake the dust off your feet and you treat that village in Israel as if it was a Gentile village because they're not Israel anymore. Because they're not accepting the message of the kingdom of God. And note in verse 6, they set out and they go from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now this is on me at the minute, church. And it's going to be on me probably for quite a while and I was just saying to Daniel earlier, I'm going to probably annoy a lot of people over the next few months. Because <clears throat> I'm agitated. <laughs> agitated. And I want not just a proclaiming of the good news. I think we're, we're good at that here. I think we're good at lots of aspects of, of what a community of faith should be. I think we're good with truth and with the word of God. I think we're good with praise I think we're good with community and loving one another and looking out for one another. But when Jesus sends these guys out, he sends them out not just to proclaim a message, but he says he wants to heal people everywhere. It's not, the gospel does not come in word only. It comes in action. And I want to see action and engagement. And I want to see, this fly is really annoying me. Is it annoying anybody else? Yeah, I want to see interface and I want to see connection with the community. It's an aspect of the church that I feel at the minute we need to focus on. Because Jesus sent them out with a message, but it wasn't just go and find somewhere and stand and preach this. He said as well, I want you to heal people. I want to see human beings restored. Not, not just physically healed. Yes, on this occasion, healing people, casting out demons. But I believe it, 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 it sort of... A generic acts of compassion, blessing people, seeing their lives changed. Not, not that sort of guerrilla strike where the church, where you sneak up to somebody's door under the cover of darkness and push a leaflet through the letterbox and then turn and run in case they would answer the door and you have to speak to them. Not that sort of evangelism. But a, a proclamation of the kingdom that involves acts of compassion as well. Serving people, listening to people, meeting their needs, helping them get back on their feet. All of that requires engagement, not just giving a message. And I think church in general, we're not sort of sometimes, you know, the, the whole church, we're, we're not that good at that. And maybe because we don't travel light, 
maybe if we traveled a wee bit later, we would have a bit more time and we would be able to actually build relationship and engage with humanity a bit more. We're so busy. <laughs> I was ch- chatting to Linda last week about, a, about an issue that she would probably see a lot and I see a fair bit in school as well. And, and just making the simple point, you know what, if we weren't all in such a rush, that probably wouldn't be as big a deal. <laughs> if we had time to just slow down and listen to people and, and be with them and just settle everything, then that particular issue might not be what it is. I think if we don't travel light as individuals, and I think if we don't travel light as churches, it's probably the, you know, one of the issues with some of the, some of the churches, and it's nothing against big church. There's some awesome big churches. Um, but sometimes when, whenever things get to a certain size, the budget and things like that can constrain decisions and restrict decisions. And we'd love to do that, but we can't because we need to, to do this. And maybe we don't travel light enough to have time to be compassionate and not only proclaim the good news, but actually heal people, bring restoration to their lives. They're told by Jesus at the start of the passage to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, they go out and they proclaim the good news. The good news, the gospel is that people's lives no longer need to be ruled by other things. That God's kingdom has come. And every other would-be, wannabe king who wants to rule people's lives and oppress them and keep them enslaved, that king has to step aside because God's kingdom has come. Now what I want to do in the rest of the passage is, is compare two kings and to compare two tables. The first king is mentioned here in verse 7. And he's not even a king. He wants to be king His daddy was king, but he is not actually a king himself. He's called Herod. He's the great villain, or his dad. When we see, we're going to look at the family tree here, and you want to see one messed up family tree. It's this one. His dad was the great villain of every nativity play. You know, as you go through primary school as a parent, your your great wish and desire is that your child never has to play Herod in the nativity play, because that would be bad. And Herod, this is actually the son of that Herod. He's called here Herod the Tetrarch. Tetra means four. And this guy ruled over a quarter of of the, the kingdom. Herod the Tetrarch heard all about what was going on. And he was perplexed because some people were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. And Herod's worried about this. We'll find out why a wee bit later. And Herod said, I beheaded John. This is what kings do with prophets. I beheaded John. Who then is this? I hear such things about. And he tried to see him. Now let's talk about Herod. In fact, let's start off talking about Herod the Great. So in your Christmas stories, the early chapters of of Matthew in particular and Luke as well, this is Herod who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. This is the guy that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. This is the guy who also, when you read history, you find out that he left orders with an official Anytime Herod went on a journey, he would leave orders with an official and he would say, if I die on this journey, 
you are to execute my wife because I can't stand the thought of anyone else being with my wife. So that was his orders that he left when he traveled. If anything happens to me, kill her. He killed three of his own sons. Caesar, who knew a thing or two about being a nasty bloke, Caesar said about Herod, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He gave orders, listen to this one. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. He gave orders on his deathbed that whenever he died, several prominent Jewish leaders were to be executed at that moment to ensure that there was mourning in the land whenever Herod died. He knew everyone hated him. He knew nobody would shed a tear for him, but he wanted the day of his death to be a day of mourning. So he basically said, whenever I die, go and kill these people so that there will be mourning in the land. This is the sort of person that we're dealing with. Now, he had a couple of sons. He had multiple sons, but there's two in particular that we're interested in today. Herod Antipas is our boy today in the story in Luke chapter 9. There was another one called Herod Philip. Okay? And there's a granddaughter as well called Herodias. A different member of Herod the Great's family. So we've got Herod the Great, he's the big daddy, you know, evil Mark I. And then he has two sons and other kids, but two sons. And then there's a granddaughter called Herodias. Now things really start to get messy. Because Herod Philip marries Herodias. Which means he's marrying his niece. Alright, that's messed up enough. And they have a child, female, a daughter, and she can dance. She's going to appear in the, in the big... I'm pulling in some stuff from Mark here as well. Do you get a picture of what's going on? So they, they get married and they have a daughter and their daughter can dance. Now, the plot thickens in that Herodias then leaves Philip and marries Herod Antipas, our boy in the story today. And you will probably know a wee bit of the story of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist goes to Herod Antipas and says, you've taken your brother's wife who also happens to be your niece. Mm-hmm. And what happens to our dancing daughter is that uh, she, at a feast that Herod has, does a dance for him and pleases him. Now, we'll not go into detail about what the dance was like, but it probably wasn't very nice. And he is so pleased by the way this, this girl dances that he offers to give her anything she wants. Now, just to show you how messed up the family was, the daughter who danced at the meal is Herod's niece. She's also his great-niece. And she's also his stepdaughter. Now, this family is reality TV gold. You know, keeping up with the Herodians would be the name of it. They are an absolute moral mess. And whenever this girl dances for Herod, he offers her half of his kingdom. Because once a man is filled with alcohol and filled with lust, he can do and say some things that he will regret. She goes and consults her mother, Herodias, and Herodias says, I know what I want. I want John the Baptist's head. And the reason she wants John the Baptist's head is because John the Baptist called out Herod for marrying her. Because whenever a prophet goes to a king or a wannabe king and says, what you're doing is wrong, then the king goes mad. Because the king's not used to having that said to him. 
And the reason why they hated John was because John reminded them of Elijah. And Elijah reminded them of the other prophets. And what did the prophets do in the Old Testament? You read 1 Kings and you read 2 Kings and you'll find the prophets over and over again went to the king and said, the way you're living is wrong. And the king went clean mad. And it's exactly the same thing here. And that's why Herod is so annoyed when he hears about what's going on around Galilee with the preaching of the disciples and people being healed. And he starts to get worried and say, who is this? Who is this guy that they're talking about? Herod's table is a table of lust and greed and selfishness. It's a table where you trample over people to get what you want. It's a table where you don't care who else gets hurt as long as you don't lose your reputation. That's what it means to be at Herod's table. And to sit at a table with a king meant you were part of the king's family. So on a positive note, you think back to David and Mephibosheth, where David welcomed this guy to his table and said, you eat at my table, you're part of my family, I'm going to look after you. On a negative note, you think of Daniel, who refused to eat at the king's table, which was a good choice to make because he didn't want to be associated with the king of Babylon. He says, I'm not going to eat his food. I'm not going to drink his wine. I'm just going to have vegetables. (laughs) Okay. He says, I'm not having it because if I sit at his table and I eat his food, then that is showing that I am associated with him and I'm not going to be associated with him. So to sit at the table with Herod is is to drink in Herod's view on life. And the world is full of Herod's. And the world is full of tables where you can go and eat and drink the ideology, the thinking of the world. And we need to be really careful about what we eat and drink, whether that's books, TV, music, whatever it is. You can slowly be drip fed a way of thinking about life and it can look really innocent. It can look really innocent, but you can be just drip fed a way of thinking about life that can start to affect you. You need to be careful what table you eat at and what king you sit with. And Herod comes, the good thing about this is the question Herod asks. I I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? After the disciples have gone and proclaimed the kingdom of God and healed the sick, and cast out demons, Herod does not say, who are the disciples? This is how you know they did well. He says, who is Jesus? That's how you know evangelism is going well, and the community of faith are engaging well, because people aren't asking, who is Peter? Who is John? Who is James? Who is Andrew? He's asking, who is this Jesus? The disciples were going out, and they were ministering in a way that was drawing attention, not to themselves, but to Jesus. That is good ministry. But Herod is just curious. You know, who is this? I hear such things about. He tried to see him. It's curiosity. It's just like, yeah, I'd like to hear this guy and I know it's he's not he doesn't want to come and repent. He's got a small view of Jesus. He just asks about him. He doesn't really want to know him. So that's Herod's table. That's the 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 atmosphere around his table, lust and greed and envy and selfishness and and death and horrible things. But there's another table, and the other table is Jesus' table. 
Jesus has lost John the Baptist, his friend, his cousin, his forerunner. And Jesus withdraws and he goes into the wilderness to be alone, slips away. The twelve come with him and they're in a remote place. They're in a wilderness. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done and he took them with them and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. This is an aspect of Jesus I think is almost not impossible but very difficult to model. He's just been wrecked when you put the Gospels together by the loss of John the Baptist, the brutal death of John the Baptist. He takes some time to be alone and the crowd show up. And he doesn't send Peter to say, listen, tell those folks I need a day or two to myself. He welcomes them and he starts telling them about the kingdom and he starts to heal them. And according to Mark's gospel, Jesus says they are like sheep without a shepherd. Now that is a term that's used in the Old Testament whenever the people don't have a leader. It's used in Ezekiel, it's used in Zechariah, it's used in various different places when God's people have no leader, no shepherd, no king that's the terms that are that are used sheep without a shepherd and what we're getting here is a picture not only of a of a table in the wilderness to contrast with herod's table not only a table in the wilderness but a king as well we're getting subtle little pointers when you put the gospels together that jesus is a king with a table in the wilderness and you're being asked which table will you eat at and who is your king? It's, it's sort of hinted at again in Mark, wherever Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. You don't need to be told that grass is green, but Mark is pointing you back to somewhere in the Old Testament where there is that message to sit down or to lie down in green pastures. And it's Psalm 23, and it's the shepherd's psalm about a shepherd, a leader, a king. So we're being contrasted. The king in his palace with his table of lust and envy and death and greed and the king in the wilderness with his table of compassion and grace. And I think of a psalm, Psalm 78 verse 19. There's a verse in the middle of it that says, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? And I imagine as Jesus does this and as the gospel writers write about it, that question is probably in their minds. This is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels, this feeding of the 5,000. Is Jesus the real king? Herod is making a claim, but is Jesus the real king? And the 12 are with him. And whenever you're close to Jesus, you get jobs to do. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place. I can be like this. I can be very practical minded. So practical minded that I will find reasons not to do something. (laughs) And they're like, that's just, here's the practical reality. Number of people, here's where we are. Here's what we've done all day. We need to send them home and we need to tell them to go and get something to eat. And Jesus isn't like that because Jesus, as we read at the start of the chapter, sends people out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. 
and to do acts of compassion and to bring restoration and to provide for people and to serve them. It's not just a case of Jesus going into the wilderness, getting up on a platform and preaching and saying, right, folks, same time next week. No. There will be a a real practical demonstration of the message, and that's to feed them. And he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. You do it. <laughs> you know? If you really care for these people, then you won't be happy at just letting them hear the message of the kingdom. You will want to feed them. You'll want to serve them. You'll want to restore them. Jesus doesn't tell them to add those people to their prayer lists. Prayer can sometimes be a real excuse to not do anything. <laughs> I don't know about you. But have you ever heard, you know, Christian cliche number 43, I'll be thinking about you. <laughs> or you hear about something, you know, I'll keep that in mind. Sort of this, I'll pray about it. Now, praying about it's good, obviously. But sometimes it can just be a, I'm not going to do anything about that. <laughs> but I'll pray about it. I'll keep it in mind. Bless you. I'll be thinking about you. <laughs> no, do something. Do something. If people are going to a lost eternity, if people's lives are a mess, if people are being oppressed by the wrong king because they have eaten at the wrong table, let's do something about it. (laughs) Not just fob it off as something that we'll just pray about. And often this happens with God. Our idea is we come to Jesus with a, here, these people are hungry and they need to get something to eat. And it bounces back as, you do it. That's the reason it came up in your heart. That's the reason you thought about it. That's the reason you got a burden for it. That's the reason you noticed it. You do. And he says to them, you give them something to eat. And there's so many examples of that in so many missions and ministries in history. And even in the lives of people sitting here in the room where you've seen a need and you've brought it to God. And then God has turned it around and you've realized that he's been saying, you do it. (laughs) I'm glad you heard it. I'm glad you've prayed about it. Now you do something about it. And this happens because they are close to Jesus. Now, are you close to Jesus? The 12 were close to him. The 12 were close enough to be brought with him whenever he wanted to withdraw and have some time to himself. They were close to him. And because they were close to him, they heard the burden of his heart. Are you close to him? Every single day. There are times when I get up in the morning and all I can do is the help prayer that I talked about last week. And as, as far as the scriptures go, I, I, all I can do maybe is stick the, the earplugs or the earphones in and listen to a couple of chapters in the audio Bible as I'm doing a few things in the morning and getting things ready. And then there are other times that it's deeper and it's longer. But is there a daily Are you with him? Because if you're with him, you start to feel the burden that he feels. And he says, you do it. You do it. And they say, basically, all all we have is these five loaves of bread and two fish that we stole from a child. (laughs) This is all we've got. And you protest and you say, I can't do it. I don't have time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the resources. And what Jesus does with what they bring to him is amazing. He says to the disciples, get everyone to sit down in groups of 50. That's another wee point back to the shepherd because Moses did that. I think it's in Exodus 18. Moses gets the people into into groups of 50. 
Another point here that this is not just a small practical aspect of people getting a bite to eat, but Jesus actually is the new Moses, the new shepherd, the new leader, the new king. And whenever he receives the the loaves and the fish, he looks up to heaven, he gives thanks and he breaks them and he gives them to the disciples to to distribute. The only miracle that's in all four gospels and also in it, you've got the last supper. You've got that wording of blessing and giving thanks and breaking and distributing. But I love what he does. He gives it to the disciples to distribute. Gives it to the disciples to distribute. God has so much that he wants to give to a broken community. But there have to be disciples who will come and say, give me something to distribute. Yeah? Our job is is in this partnership to do the distribution. They don't just sit in a corner of the field and pray while Jesus does everything. Jesus says to them, take this. And give it to these people so that they will know that I love them. So that they will know that I am their shepherd. So that they will know that I am Yahweh among them in the wilderness providing the bread of life. I love it. The partnership. And because of their connection to Jesus... They're able to provide more than enough food for everyone present. And after chapter 8 ended with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and a girl who was 12 years old and died and was raised from the dead and the 12 disciples now mentioned two or three times referred to as the 12 uh, around Jesus and then at the end there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And I think there's so many layers to what those 12 basketfuls mean, but maybe on a very simple term, those 12 disciples came to Jesus and said, this is all we've got. Jesus took it, multiplied it, they distributed it, and each one of them had a basket of leftovers. Each one of them had a souvenir. Each one of them knew now that Jesus could provide with overflow and with abundance. So whose table are you eating at? And who is your king? If you eat at Herod's table, you're surrounded by those things that I've mentioned already. Greed and lust and power and control and death. Skewed relationships. Such messed up relationships at Herod's table. A place where you trample over people to maintain your own reputation. It looks like celebrity culture. But celebrity culture used to be something that you just saw on, on TV But now you get lots of people are trying to live like they're celebrities. (laughs) And the same sort of relationship mess and financial mess and all sorts of messes is seeping down because people are eating at Herod's table. I'm frequently struck by how unhappy a lot of young people are. I look at them and think, you've got everything going for you. Everything. You just have everything. (laughs) But you're so unhappy. Some kids are under a lot of pressure outside of school and some maybe have a hard time within school. But I think a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers are gorging themselves at Herod's table. Feeding on the ideologies and the thinking of this world and it seeps into them and it just poisons their hearts and makes them unhappy. Whereas Jesus has a table of compassion, provision, power, life, 
I can picture those people sitting on the grass in the sunshine, laughing, enjoying the food and the company, thinking through what Jesus had taught them that day. They're alive, they're at peace, they're safe. They have a shepherd, they have a king, they're in community. That's what happens at Jesus' table. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Yes, he can. And Jesus' call in our lives, as I draw to our close, is the same as the call in the twelve. He has given power and he has given authority and he has called us to go out and proclaim. But we sometimes don't go out and proclaim. What we do is we proclaim and say, come and listen to me proclaim. Not going to happen. And the church has got to change its thinking. You know, part of the, the stuff that, that, that we do over the, or have done over the last few years at Forge is trying to get pioneer leaders and people who want to do new things to change their thinking. <coughs> That we can't, and this is where the danger of COVID is as well, and, and the last couple of years, we can't just slip into this rut of saying, come in and listen to the message. There has to be a going. There has to be an engaging. There has to be a sharing and a distributing with the people around us. We've got to make sure that we don't fall into that old mindset because it can be so dangerous. And so unsatisfying to just go week after week and do a sermon and a good time of praise and a prayer meeting and, and, a, and the odd meal together. It's so unsatisfying because it's not what God has called us to. He has called us to more than that. Whose table do you eat at? Who is your king? What's your philosophy of ministry and mission? And can we learn anything from what Jesus says to the disciples in these verses? Let's pray and then we'll worship again.